You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Lisa Kovacevic. Joining me tonight in the cave is Cerise Howard and Sally Christie. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Welcome, hello. Welcome, hello. hello. It's us three again. Uh, On tonight's show, there is a running theme of robbery from Coriator's family crime drama Shoplifters to Robert Redford's turn as a bank robber in The Old Man and the Gun to the Coen Brothers Western The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which features all manner of thievery from bank robbers to prospectors. Tom Waits also ties those films together in a way. Not shoplifters so much. Not such <laughs> exception of shoplifters. Uh, but we'll kick off with The Old Man and the Gun, uh, which is based on the true story of Forrest Tucker, played here by Robert Redford, a career bank robber whose audacious escape from San Quentin at the age of 70 confounded authorities. Noted for his dapper attire, his multiple prison escapes, and his ability to pull off his crimes with minimal fuss, stories of Forrest Tucker enchanted the public. Set in the late 70s, early 80s, when Tucker was nearing retirement age. The film follows Tucker as he embarks on an unprecedented string of new heists, assisted by a couple of old pals played by Danny Glover and Tom Waits, who team up with him to form what becomes known as the Over the Hill Gang. I love that title. Um, Wrapped up in the pursuit are Detective John Hunt, played by Casey Affleck, who becomes captivated with Forrest's commitment to his craft, and a woman, played by Sissy Spacek, who falls in love with him in spite of his questionable career. Uh, Writer-director David Lowry seems to have a penchant for whimsy and nostalgia, as displayed in his 2013 outlaw romance, Eight Them Bodies Saints, and his recent reimagining of Disney's Pete's Dragon. But for some, his brand of nostalgia in last year's A Ghost Story was polled Polarizing. Uh, some found it breathtaking, others nauseating. I don't know if it was Casey Affleck's wandering around a farmhouse in a bedsheet that did it or having to sit through Rooney Mara eating a pie for 10 minutes straight, but love it or hate it, one thing certain David Lowry's sensibility is refined yet earnest nostalgia. Well, that's at least the feeling I got from watching the trailer because I actually haven't seen this film um, so you guys have. Yes. Is that kind of on point? Does the story transcend that sort of nostalgic vibe? It's very nostalgic. It was shot on 16mm. You know, it, it's a classic Hollywood story with classic Hollywood actors. So we've got Robert Redford, we've got Sissy Spacek, which it is so delightful to see her on screen. I just love Sissy Spacek. She's, she's ageless great. too, isn't she? She's <laughs> incredible. Like, she's just the best. She's got the best profile in the world. I love her. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's a classic Hollywood story. It's a classic heist film, but it does seem a little softer than a regular heist film. And I think, I don't know if he's trying to play into the Over the Hill Gang's age, is that it? it is, they, they keep calling Robert Redford's character um, in this, oh, what are they called? Gentlemanly, gentlemanly. Or polite. It's, it is, uh, it's gentlemanly. Yeah. It mm. smiles. Very, yes, mm. it's a very gentlemanly film. Mm. And I mean... I, I found it a, a nice film to watch. It was nothing kind of really meaty, but it, it does. It's a classic Hollywood story. It, fe- it feels very old fashioned, and I think that that was very much the intent with it. And because it's based on a true story, I think it sort of was born out of a New Yorker article in about 2003, perhaps around there. And Robert passed it on to Lowry to um, look at producing it into a film. And I think with the idea of him being the sort of star. In the film, uh, and he's also sort of said it's possibly his last film. Does he go out with a bang, pardon the pun, but or, or is, is it a good turn, you know? It feels very much like it's a film for him. Like, yeah, fair, it's, yes, yeah, it's playing yeah. to his strengths and it's yeah. playing, you know, there's little... It, it feels like, you know, Bush, a Butch Cassidy sort of film. There's even some little, I think, in-jokes about that there um, with some scenes with 
him on horses and things. But, um, yeah, it feels like it's very much for him. So it could be his last film. I don't know. Is he kissed? Is he John Farnham? Does he save yeah. us often? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 was just, I was listening to an interview with him and he was just sort of saying, I don't have time to sit around in trailers anymore. I'm getting old, you yeah. know, waiting between takes. So it could be his last film, possibly not. What did you think, Cerise? It's a really charming, charming yeah. film. Nostalgic, definitely. It has a lovely 70s grain, that, that shot on 16mm and blown up look, plus the, the palette, everything about the feel of it is... New Hollywood, which is now very old, mm. the, the New Hollywood of the 70s was, was such a time of um, energised filmmaking and, and certain stars who really carried that. And Redford was one of them, one of the real icons of that time. And now, of course, he looks very weathered. He is generally an old man. He is the old man of the, of the title. The gun, the gun's an, an interesting one because he, he probably wields one a lot of the time, but... We don't get a lot of gunplay exactly. Yeah. It's 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 um, there's a lot of the film showing you certain things but misdirecting you. There's a little bit of sleight of hand, you could say, um, including in the robbery scenes where they, he really just robs people with charm alone, which is perfectly endearing. <laughs> and um, and yeah, you know, his his robber buddies. I mean, Tom Waits and Danny Glover. Tell me, you don't want to rob a bank, with Tom Waits <laughs> and Danny Glover? Isn't that a, a dream you've long harboured, Lisa? <laughs> Can't say it's my personal dream. It is but now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Tom Waits gets one particular lovely um, soliloquy almost, really. Yeah. He just uh, tells a story. No one else gets a word in edgeways as he just gives a, a, a classic Waitsian riff on some sort of past criminal shenanigans. It's kind of hilarious but perfectly deadpan and droll. Um, but I, as, as we'll talk about when we get to the the coen brothers film as well i knew it was weights but also didn't see him i mean he's an underutilized Isn't he? i think yeah. that too yeah he's really terrific he's excellent and he's you know he's been acting for forever as you know almost as long as his music career yeah i just never consider him as, a, yeah. as an actor and actually after reviewing buster scruggs yesterday uh, which we'll be reviewing shortly i didn't know it was him till i started writing my notes i was like who was that awesome actor i was like oh my god uh, yeah Tom. I'll, I'll leave it for buster scruggs yes. yeah yes yes we yeah, digress. But I mean, he, he was someone who always brought a lot of characterizations to his music, so mm. it, it shouldn't be that big a surprise. But I, I just wonder why all of a sudden uh, we get him in two films, two new films, when um, perhaps he hasn't been in anything for quite some time. I don't know. Maybe he's been in some little. I don't feel or, like he has but, been in anything for quite a long yeah. time. Yeah, it seems like a long time since I've seen him on the screen. Yeah, mm. yeah. I can't say I followed his career, but yeah. It's it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> but this this film's it's perfectly enjoyable. I think there's supposed to be a hint of a, a Hemingway illusion in the title. Mm. Um, the old man in the sea, yep. the gun, right. there's something almost as if the man is at odds with the gun, which he kind of is, it's but the gun's almost. his it's mm. it's part of his MO but it at the same time isn't. Because yeah, I think that's the first thing yeah. that we see when the film opens is the gun. Mm. And then yeah, like you were saying, Cerise, it's does he have it, does he not have it? It's, yeah, it doesn't play a very big role. So my understanding of the story is he th- thrives on bank robbery and mm-hmm. breaking out of prison. So when he goes, is that right? So when, yep. he go, when he goes back into prison, he's quite excited because it presents another opportunity to es- escape. Is that right? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of a, a pinch of a story that we get 
more towards the end of the film. It's more sort of focused on the particular part um, of his life that he's in at that moment where he's with the Over the Hill gang and also the um, chase from the Casey Affleck character who mm. is the detective. Yeah, the backstory is a slow reveal. Yep. Yes. Yep. But it's, it, it does remind me of another film, one I absolutely adore, which was also about um, a brilliant escapologist, which began just as this film does and just as American Animals did earlier this year, another film about robbery mm. with uh, a, a little caveat at the beginning. Not caveat exactly, but just a little advisory that this happened. This is a true story, at least true-ish. Mm. I think it's, it's a weird one, this one. I think it says this also happened. I think that was the opening line. And I'm going, what? what? Wasn't there an interesting what, yeah. caveat at the start of American Animals as well? Yeah, yeah there I think, is. What did they do? They, they made words disappear uh, or something. Yeah, just to emphasise the fact it really, really happened. And this, <laughs> the, the film I was um, also alluding to that did this really stressed that what you're about to see happened so that one of the extremely outrageous twists in it you have to accept, even though it's so offensive. That's I Love You, Philip Morris. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. I thought of that when I yeah. was watching this film. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. I mean, the, uh, his, his escape antics in that film are extraordinary and mm. taken from historical record as well, and I love that film so yeah, much. Yeah, it's excellent. Mm. Uh, and it has a real edge to it. that This film doesn't. This film's just lovely. You could see this with, I think you take almost anyone of any age yeah. with you and just enjoy this in any company, really. Mm. Yeah, it's I just felt, a, felt yeah. that as well. It's a lovely, it's honeyed experience. Classic storytelling, you know. Is it? Does it say anything about masculinity of the time or is it? does it, have, does it explore broader themes at all about ageing? and? Not necessarily. No. There's a minor sort of comments on it mm. between uh, Redford's character and Sissy Spacek's character but it's I, I didn't feel that it was overly explored. It was just that these were older people. There are a couple of curious touches. So the, the Casey Affleck character, interestingly, has a mixed race marriage and child, which is just very matter of fact. And It's never discussed, yeah. Yeah, mm. which is perfectly agreeable, yep. but almost so agreeable that you think, why isn't this an issue in its own little subplot <laughs> way? I was like, yes. when is this going to be brought yeah, yeah. up? And it, and it wasn't. But maybe that's just because I've yeah. had Black Klansman in mind recently too and because this film's set in... Similar times. Yeah, yep. similar times, mm, yeah. Mm. And, and race within the police force was such a, an issue in that film and that film is, of course, taking from another outlandish true story. Mm. Um, so, but, so there's that. But weirdly, there's a, a scene with romantic overtones which is between the two of them soundtrack to the kinks lola which makes absolutely no sense like i mean i love that song to bits but to me it speaks of a very particular scenario yeah and there's nothing in the images to associate with that unless we're displacing gender onto race yeah but that's probably reading much too much into it but then it still begs the question why that song they obviously didn't think it through (laughs) because the film's set late 70s into early 80s and that song's older than that so it needn't have been something that would have been ubiquitous on the radio exactly it's just it's just a bit odd Maybe like, they were just fans of the track and hadn't really thought about the subtext of the song. I was going to put Lola in here somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, but how, how could anyone not? Yeah, it's yeah, great yeah I mean, it's, yeah, the, the subtext of the song is, is it's text. It's not much mm. of subtext, really. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's a bit curious. But otherwise, I mean, there's, there's not really any, any missteps here and there's not really any, uh, anything that just... Uh, no, no real false steps. It's mm. it's just a really tight, yeah. lovely little film. That's why I think he's a really sophisticated filmmaker, if not a little too saccharine for me at times. But he's yeah, a very competent filmmaker, and I I think he'll continue to make these kinds of 
mainstream, wide appeal kind of films. Well, mm. why does she appeal? Because this you know, this isn't a Marvel. Uh, no, you know, it's, no, it's it's a it's a little film, but mm. with big stars, mm. and it, in its own way, it, it it's of a style of film that the studios used to make quite routinely, and the studios now generally ball kept making in the That's little. That's right. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. A film called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs from filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen, collectively referred to as the Cohen Brothers, uh, who are well regarded for blending filmic genres and styles which they frequently subvert or parody. And The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is no exception, a Western anthology, anthology of short stories that the pair have been writing for the best part of 25 years. The film blends elements of classic Hollywood westerns and musicals with their own unique brand of noir, thriller, black comedy and character-driven period drama. The film stars Tim Blake Nelson, who I believe was singing that, that song. He's a frequent um, performer in their films. Liam Neeson, uh, James Franco, Zo- uh, Zoe Kazan, Tyne Daly and Tom Waits again. Uh, and they feature in this sort of series of six short stories, all set in the Wild West, that commence with the cheerful but wanted, uh, but the cheerful but wanted singing cowboy Buster Scruggs, uh, who we just heard, and then the film sort of slowly descends to much sort of darker themes and places. Um, this is an interesting one because in, in in recent years Netflix have made a big push to expand beyond a streaming film and television service of pre-existing content to produce high-end original television series and film. A big part of their in-house production strategy is to work directly with big-name directors and actors. Think um, uh, Bong Joon-ho's uh, Okja, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Tilda Swinton, Annihilation, starring Natalie Portman, or Noah Baumbach's um, The Meyerowitz Stories with Dustin Hoffman and Ben Stiller, among many others. Um, so seeing this sort of industry shift in how smaller projects are financed, the Coens ruled out traditional film studio funding for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs quite early on, uh, given that Netflix was investing in movies that aren't based on Marvel comics or other established action franchises, which is really what the big studios trade in now. Uh, they sort of sought for an alternative funding model. Uh, so this is a co-production between a company called Annapurna Pictures and Netflix. Um, and the film premiered at the 75th Venice International Film Festival in August where it won the Golden Acela Award for Best Screenplay and was released on November 16 on Netflix after a quite a limited theatrical run. Its entry and win at the Venice Film Festival really marks a shift in the way audiences and the film community are viewing these types of films, don't you think? Oh, totally. Though I, my understanding is that this might have been originally created by the Coens as, for each of them to be standalone little vignettes and, mm. and then that got anthologised. Uh, but... They're perfectly cinematic, even no, no, no matter what they, what how they imagined, um, what they were making to be presented ultimately. And th- these are films, and when you open that that, that first that first short, the Buster Scruggs one opens with spectacular vistas of Monument Valley, very familiar from countless westerns, mm. and, and all sorts of angled, uh, beautiful cinematography. It's a film. Yes. These are films. It's so, they're so cinematic. Yeah. And they, it's, it's, it's funny, though. I wonder how they feel about it being released on the small screen because they do they do demand a big, wide-scope cinema, don't you think? Well, westerns, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, to, to do justice to the gorgeous, not just the cinematography, but the actual the beauty of the, the landscape, mm. uh, as familiar as aspects of it are, if you've seen a few westerns over the years, 
But this is, this is it's a real, with that, any anthology film, there are strengths and weaknesses. Not all of the segments are as strong as one another. Mm. I think the James Franco one's a bit... Yeah. Wanting. Yeah. I mean, it's quite <laughs> short as well, whereas yeah. one or two of the others are much, much longer. But Tom Waits. Tom. <laughs> I was going to gush over Tom Waits. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to immediately begin the gushing because he totally owns one whole short. He's almost the only person in it. There's some critters. Yep. He plays a fabulous gold prospector. Yeah. Uh, he's so immersed in his mad quest to find gold in a, a lovely little brook that is perfectly unspoiled until he arrives at idyllic scenes of uh, there's a, a, a stag with a beautiful set of antlers there are butterflies there are dragonflies and as soon as there's any sign of humankind they all just quietly disappear it's very cartoonish but beautifully yeah beautifully done there's a lot that's cartoonish about these shorts on the whole especially the first one the, the yes. buster so as one is entirely cartoonish but i think tom waits is absolutely fantastic in this short film yeah he's it's, quite um, remarkable it's actually quite a moving performance too by the end of it surprisingly mm. so i didn't totally twig it was him until he burst into song and thought i know that, that voice. voice yeah <laughs> someone was saying to me today that they didn't realize it was tom waits until he spoke and then as soon as the first word came out of his mouth like oh that's tom waits but um yeah i thought the segment that he was in was in- so incredibly beautiful mm. for someone that like myself that likes going to see something on the big screen I find it difficult with these, um, you know, Netflix releases. Mm. I mean, I understand, and you know, it, it's good that there's this additional funding body, but we have things like, you know, we discussed Annihilation earlier this year, which felt like it definitely should have been on the big screen. And I don't think that was made for Netflix. That was, was made it for the big screen. It got picked mm. up. Mm. So it was Paramount, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously the Awesome Wells film last week, mm. which... I was sitting on my couch watching it on a Saturday afternoon going, God, I can't believe I'm just sitting in my lounge room watching this when I should be in a cinema. Um, So I I do, as a a lover of cinema and a lover of seeing something on a big screen, I do really feel an injustice with that. I do too, Mm. but I'm also sort of like if... I sort of feel like if films that are freely unencumbered by that sort of hegemony of... The, the major studios mm. are going to be what Netflix is going to give us, then I'll, I will subscribe yeah. because I feel like there was another film earlier this year we talked about called Sunday's Illness. That which was, was excellent. Wasn't that an yeah, excellent film? That was and wonderful. That, that film would not have been seen mm. had they not f- picked it up and but, finished it off. And I, I, look, I don't, I would love to be mm. seeing films on the big screen forever, but I think the, you know, the world is changing and, you know, oh, we definitely. don't want it, we just can't be mm. Luddites about I, I it. I think the, yeah, it definitely is changing in the way that viewers consume things is changing it has changed like 100% the way that you know teenagers consume things are completely different to how you know I did when I was a teenager Mm. but um I do also have concerns with the fact that things are going to get lost in a heap of Netflix things because to be honest with this which is a Coen Brothers release um and with Sunday's Illness I was was only aware because people told me. Yeah, and we're drowning in content is the problem, right? Mm. I don't know. What did you want to say? Well, moreover, there's no reason uh, other than certain fuddy-duddyism and weirdness in French law that films like these haven't been able to premiere at festivals and have some festival play. And some of them have um, in other parts of the world, but, but really... That, that Netflix can lock things down such that here in Australia we don't have an opportunity to see a new Coen Brothers film 
on a big screen even for a limited season. Mm. I know that um, Acme have seized the opportunity to screen Roma in a couple of weeks. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron's much acclaimed film that I believe opened the Cine Latino Film Festival here just recently. So we do have an opportunity to see what I gather is going to be quite a sumptuous... I mean, the trailer looks stunning, so I can't wait to seize that opportunity to see it on a big screen. Why some of these other films... Some someone hasn't got in there and said, "Come on, let's at least get Orson's Wells's first yeah. film since he died 33 years ago on a big screen." Maybe mm. not his last film since he died. I mean, there's a lot of unfinished material there still to work with yeah. people. So um, there, there's no good reason why we can't have it both ways. Both yeah, ways. really. Yeah, yeah. I guess what you're talking, the point you're sort of talking to Sally, is this idea of fragmented audiences, though, mm. so that we're all. Consuming what we want to consume, everything's niche now, so things are going to get lost because yeah. it's not just one sort of service where you go to a movie theatre to see the, the big films, which means more stuff gets produced and more niche stuff gets produced. Mm. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I don't know. Or I don't know. Is there an argument to counter that? <laughs> I, don't I don't necessarily know. think it's a bad thing. Mm. I just know from, like, yeah. my own point of view and maybe my own laziness with looking through things that I feel like I miss a lot of content on streaming services yeah. and that's you know my own fault yeah, not necessarily anybody else no I mean I agree with you because I do too a heap and um and it's because there's also this sort of lack of ceremony around them whereas yeah. before you'd go to a, a movie premiere and it was a big event you know whereas now we sort of are missing that uh, that mm. sort of yeah element of ceremony this film um the ballad of Buster Scruggs is what we're talking about which is um as we say now streaming on Netflix is a Coen Brothers uh, new film. I um, I actually, yeah, like you said, Sari, sometimes these anthologies don't really work. I, I, I went with it because it felt like there was a progression there for me um, in, in two ways. I think that stylistically they borrow from different eras of the Western genre, you know, so like there's the 1940s ones, there's the, the musical ones, there's um, the sort of Sergei Leone type style as well. And I, um, and I thought it was interesting the way they sort of, they sort of moved through that history of cinema, but they also seem to be critiquing, I think, the way that Hollywood had this um, mythology that they wanted to tell American people about their origin story, their origin Mm. myth. And I feel like this film does a good job at unravelling that. Or skewering it a bit. I think they're borrowing from a bit farther afield as well. So Mm. the singing cowboy, that's Mm. not a new trope and it's not unique to Hollywood either. So, for example, there's a Czechoslovak film from the 60s called Lemonade Joe about a yodeling cowboy yep. who won't have anything stronger than lemonade. <laughs> Partly that's, I think, a, a little Western, a, a, an Eastern Western joke sort of thing too. That it, it, So that's a film that totally uh, plays with all of what's very familiar about Hollywood Westerns and and that, that singing and, and that, that, that sort of dapper cowboy thing comes from there as well as uh, and other there are other westerns you know everyone knows of the spaghetti westerns that mm. the italians churned out an immense uh, a number of often quite bloodthirsty and grubby bristly ugly but beautiful operatic westerns and they became their own thing though they were loathed when they first materialized by the critical majority weirdly uh, but I think all of that feeds into where the Coens are because they're, they're master pastichers they, they are magpies they'll take a bit from this from that a lot of the references will be lost on a lot of people I'm sure I didn't pick up all of them in there but there's something familiar about some of these stories some some of the plot developments were uh, did pull the, the rug out from underneath but others 
the story of the the limbless performer. I, I saw where that was heading from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And I think maybe because I've heard, come across that little story before. Right. But it's quite a lovely one and the performances in that are great. Uh, yeah, that's it features Liam Neeson. Mm. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's so dark. That one and the the, the the final chapter had a real Edgar Allan Poe vibe about them too. There's this real American Gothic um, vibe running through them, which is in stark contrast to the opening, which mm. is like a, a, a cowboy in pristine white with a silly wide brim hat singing and it yodeling was so clean. It was whites were so yet, white <laughs> yeah that undercuts expectations there because of course it turns into a blood bar. Uh, well, well, of course it was always going to it's and, a coen brothers film and it's a mm. western as well yeah. which which is you know a theme that's um so rich for death and i think which is something that they often they love playing with with death and people dying in unusual ways or unnatural ways we should say and i i think every chapter features a death or ends in a death of some kind and i don't know for me i just sort of i sort of read that as a a, a killing off of that mythology of that sort of origin story that Hollywood really wanted to project to its people. I feel like that's the message that I sort of took from the mm. film, whether it's true or not. Well, the James Franco one is very literally an exercise in gallows humour. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's also the weak spot, I think, because I just can't believe in James Franco in that sort of role. He's not, he's just too, still too pretty. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I really liked the James Franco one. The first two were the ones that I liked the best, the ones where they were quite funny, and then it fell flat for me. Mm. Um, Even Tom? Know. Say it ain't so, so. Oh, no, no, the Tom one, actually, yeah, I, I eat my words. Because, um, yeah, that was that was gorgeous, the Tom Waits one. Um, but, yeah, the first two I really liked, and I did like the James Franco one, but, yeah, he, you're right, he is too pretty to be in a role like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He could grow any amount of growth on his face and he'd still be too pretty. Yeah. I think there was another chapter, I think it's the one called, is it The Gal Who Got Rattled? Um, yeah, that was the... With Zoe... Uh Zoe, what's her face? <laughs> I forget her name anyway. It was the most conventional of it was, the stories. Yeah. It was. It, when it was about um, that sort of, is it, what do you call it, uh, the train of... The wagon trail. The wagon trail, yeah, yeah which you sort train. of... Wagon train. Train? Wagon. Mm. Let's go wagon train. Um, you know, which, is, which sort of those stories, those old stories that were full, full of so much promise and hope of new land, new frontiers, and again, they just... Don't make it end so nice for you. It reminded me of uh, so that they were playing on kind of a Donna Party sort of vibe with that, where um you know they that story where they were going to I think the Donna Party were going to California and it was a bad time of year and they all pretty much froze and had to eat each other. That's what I that's where I thought that was going. That's what, that reminded me of. I was like, oh, is this going to be a Donna Party story? But it wasn't. You wanted more cannibalism. I did. From I, did. This I was film, like, did you? what would make this is a little bit more cannibalism. Yeah. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Our final film for the evening we are discussing is Shoplifters. Uh, earlier this year we reviewed uh, Hiro, Hirokazu Koreeda's The Third Murder and tonight we're looking at the prolific Japanese filmmaker's second 2018 release, Shoplifters. Like Koreeda's previous films, another deeply affecting slice of Japanese life, Shoplifters explores the heartbreak and hidden secrets of a family of small-time thieves. On the surface, Shoplifters is essentially the story of a family who, re- who rely on shoplifting to cope with a life of poverty. But like Kore- 
Marietta's previous films after The Storm, Our Little Sister, Like Father, Like Son, the writer-director's 13th feature is both a humanistic portrait and somewhat of an indictment on a society so willing to cast struggling people aside. Living somewhere on the fringes of Tokyo in a ramshackle home, we meet the Shibatas, a family consisting of a mother, father, grandmother, a teenage daughter and a young son. For them, daily existence is a struggle. Though the adults are employed in ruling jobs, the unstable economy means that everyone, including the kids, must scam for food and clothes because meagre wages and granny's pension from her dead husband can only sustain them so far. The teen daughter of the household strips and performs in a seedy peep show. The mother, Nobuyu, works in a laundry and steals what she can from the pockets of more expensive garments than her own. Father Osamu and pre-teen son Shota shoplift what they can in well-orchestrated routines. But after one daily pilfering session, they bring home a different taking. Abandoned, abused five-year-old Jury, whose presence in their home sparks joy, as well as life-changing revelations. Jury fits almost seamlessly into the misfits home and soon takes up the family occupation of stealing and shoplifting. But questions are raised about the legitimacy legitimacy, sorry, of her presence. Did they abduct, abduct the child or rescue her from an abusive home? This dilemma subtly sets in motion the unravelling of this family and teases out the true nature of their relationships and how they came to be living in this place. Shoplifters is not only directed but also written and edited by Hirokazu Koreeda and stars some familiar Koreeda faces, including Lily Frankie and Sakura Ando. Uh, yeah, what did you guys... Oh, this film premiered in, in May in Cannes, um, where it went on to win the Palm Door, I should mention that as, as well. And um, like many of Coriator's films, it's gone on to receive both critical and commercial success. I think it's the fourth highest grossing Japanese film this year, and it's done incredibly well outside of Japan. In China, it grossed around 15 million, which is exceptional considering it's essentially a small art house family family drama, right? Mm. Yeah. I think looking at the um, the square that won the Palm Door mm. last year, which we I think we talked about earlier this year, it's such a huge contrast to that movie. But mm. gee, um, this was such a beautiful film. I really thought it was just breathtakingly beautiful, and it, it, it's commenting on poverty. There's lots and lots of social issues that this film comments on, but it, they seem to be, I guess, universal. They're not limited to. Japan, you know, where it's set that we can kind of see this happening, you know, where we are in Australia um, and how it explores that children are really the most vulnerable members of our society and then, you know, how do they progress from there? But, yeah, I thought this movie was gorgeous. I really loved it. There's an interesting scene where a shopkeeper sort of uh, is aware that the young son and the, the, the newly, um, uh, what's the word, um, initiated young family member who's uh, all of five this young girl um uh doing their sort of shoplifting routine and um and the shopkeeper calls him out but he pulls the boy aside and sort of and gives him what he was planning on shoplifting anyway and says take these but don't um don't corrupt that young girl. Yeah, don't get her to do don't it. Don't get yeah. her to do it because she, she's sort of all of five. But it was interesting though because you got the feeling that he, that that shopkeeper sort of saw that young boy as already corrupted and he was probably all of 11. And so you sort of have this feeling that the society gives you a very small window of innocence and then you're you're shunned and uh, overlooked and sort of thrown to the, to the outskirts of civilization. Well, that 11-year-old boy was under the impression that um, it was exceptional to go to school, that people were homeschooled, that was the norm. Um, there's, there's, there's so much that's, 
he's he's so good at making very gentle dramas where there's very significant social issues explored, but it's so understated, and so, you really get to sit with it. And uh, as this as these relationships um, between the various characters are shown to be more complex than they appeared at first, I mean, this is the stuff that would have been it would have been stuff of high drama and in, in say um, uh, an American indie there would have been strings, there would have been dramatic stings, and there would have been uh, real real um, uh, too much made of things. This this just allows the viewer to sit with it. I think it's, it's a real gift he has, and and we say that this isn't a unique to Japan sort of scenario. In fact, if anything, it's very rare that we see this sort of um, social class shown in Japanese cinema. Uh, we get an awful lot of urban films which are all about the economic miracle and the, the, the incredible frenzied life in Tokyo and the big cities and bullet trains. And I mean, even Koreeda can even make bullet trains kind of slow and gentle and whimsical <laughs> like a film of his I love, I wish which centred around a couple of boys who believed that if they met just as bullet trains crossed, they could make a wish and it would come true. So gorgeous. I, I love his films very, yeah, what, very dearly. Yeah, what you were just saying, sorry, is how it kind of sits with you. The way that they explored labour conditions in this film um, I thought was really powerful and it was super understated and it has. It stayed with me since I watched, the, since I saw this film last week, The how they're looking at the kind of work share thing where wages get cut down because a company can't afford to pay so much so they're negotiating between employees but yeah these very real things that happen and yeah it was very very powerful well it highlights how how the these people get stuck in cycles and it, it spans the generations so within this family unit everyone is working an angle and they're not necessarily aware of what everyone else's angles are but mm. each is informing the generations beneath them um teaching them what they can, giving them what knowledge of how to get ahead in the world that they can. And unfortunately, all of that knowledge is of a criminal nature. nature. And and there's clear, I mean, again, the film's nothing didactic about it. You just get to sit with it and see that these people are stuck. Mm. They're not going to escape this cycle. It's um, it's just going to go from generation to generation. Uh, it's ambiguous too, because yes, they're criminals in the sense that they steal, they essentially abduct a child. But you're sort of also left questioning: Do they abduct her or do they save her? Because yeah. she's clearly coming from a, a home of abuse, um, and so he sort of, like you say, does poses these subtle moral d- dilemmas that are really ambiguous. And it's all it also sort of plays out. There's a scene between the mother figure who sort of abducts this child and a social worker and the social I think it's a social worker or possibly a police officer says that child has a right to be with their mother and it sort of raises these questions well what is a mother is is a mother somebody that gives birth to the to a child or is a mother somebody that gives nourishment love Mm. uh, and and protection um, which is what this family offers in this little ramshackle uh, house that they live in there's always sort of some there's a real warmth to that environment that he creates and it's noodles bubbling on a stove and protection from the rain outside and it's this real strong warm sense of family and the, the film asks well what does what does define a family and the state says you know your genie you know your genealogy decides your family whereas the film sort of says well why why can't we choose our own? You know, why can't... What is so evil or wrong about just choosing our own mem- well, And what's so right about uh, blood relations when uh, one generation is abusing the other? And, mm. and, in fact, that older generation is at odds with itself too. There's clearly an abusive husband-wife scenario and mm. then that's brought down again, the cycle. That's a, 
hits the next generation down. And I, I don't know the last time I saw domestic violence ever broached as a subject in Japanese cinema. I can't think of another yeah, film coming to one. mind. I think it's a big taboo. And this film, again, very understated and how it makes clear what's going on there, but you still have to do a little bit of yes. seeing, thinking, sitting with... Well, beyond what he actually shows you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. They had a, it had a very sort of um, Dickens quality to it as well, I felt. Like, particularly the father figure is very much, like, presented as this sort of Fagin yep. character yeah, at the start. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, and he's sort of um, recruiting young children to help carry out these petty crimes so at the start you sort of think oh is he a bit nefarious or something and and then again it's it's ambiguous because uh there's love there's genuine sort of love and care there and as he says later in at some point in the film this is just what i know this is what i know to teach this is what i know to pass on to another generation and so it's not it's not as black or white and white a character as a dickens fagin type villain you know everybody actually is very multi-dimensional even questions around the grandmother figure in this film uh the family rely heavily on her pension uh which you you find out again information is only sort of drip fed to you so you sort of slowly released yeah so you're, you're left wondering and it's very challenging which i really enjoyed um but not in a difficult way mm. just in a way that's oh what's going I on i found that too because yeah. one thing that i have been i've been finding with a lot of releases lately is the consistent spelling out exactly what is happening and i really enjoyed the fact that it's respecting of an audience's intelligence to Mm. go you don't need for me to say explicitly that this is domestic violence you understand that as an audience and you know making your mind work is is nice so yeah i have a a bit of a gripe at the moment with films really explicitly spelling everything out which this didn't was nice yeah you're a participant in this film absolutely i I will always respect that i respect being respected (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) my own intelligence acknowledged or at least presumed it is a, yeah it's a wonderful journey to go on in this film and a very surprising one it went to places i wasn't expecting um it, the film's called shoplifters uh it is on, currently on uh wide release probably independent cinemas i'd imagine um uh, the other films we talked about tonight are the old man and the gun uh which is a, probably on wide national release i would say given that robert redford's in it is it i haven't checked it's pretty bad of me i didn't talk I, I, I think maybe Independence. Okay, and we're all we're all indie tonight, Maybe. are we? Cerise is looking. Perplexed. We're all criminals, <laughs> <laughs> fun-loving criminals. Um, and the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which has just launched on Netflix. If you have access to an account, check it out. It's the new Coen Brothers film. Uh, thanks for joining us. You have been listening to Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Lisa Kovacvich, on Plato's Cave. That is all. Oh, that's all from me for the year. By the way, what? I should just sort of say. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, uh, but the rest of the team will be here to see you through till December for all your movie reviewing needs. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.